I would go home and I, I was like your first year where you're in tears and you're like, what? What is happening? Like, I never cried in front of kids, but I did cry at home. And um, what it forced me to do was become really reflective. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by... Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher. I teach high school in the Los Angeles area, and I've been at it for 16 years. And you are here at All of the Above, a show where we take a look at recent news and headlines in education and dive deep into some of the ongoings in our field because we know, like you know, that education does not get the attention that it deserves. So we're here to bring some of that attention and bring some of these issues to light. Thank you for listening if you are listening on the go. If you're watching this on YouTube, thank you for that. Please remember to hit that subscribe button so we can get our subscriber numbers up a little bit. And um, remember, you could always go to our website, aotashow.com, for links to all the stories we talk about and all the different platforms upon which you can watch or listen to all of the above. Indeed. Indeed. So, Jeff, what's on today's agenda? Well, Manuel, as usual, we got a good one for everybody. Yeah. Uh, I am excited to announce that we are revealing mm. a very special guest today uh, who our most dedicated followers mm. uh, will recognize. Yeah. Uh, but she has assumed a new and glorious title. Mm. Our senior middle school correspondent, wow. uh, you know, here on All of the Above, is going to be joining us today, Miss Genevieve Debose Akinagbe. So uh, super exciting nice. uh, to have her back with us. Um, and she is going to be helping us unpack a really interesting conversation about um, kind of the, the career trajectory of educators. And I think it's fair to say for a lot of us, you might reach a point in your career where you kind of hit a low spot, right? Yeah. Where maybe you're questioning, you know, did I make the right choice? Is this right for me? Right, right. Um, and you've got to, you know, dig deep and gut check and kind of find your way back to, to a yeah. place of, of thriving and sustainability. Um, so we're going to talk about that today uh, with, with Genevieve, our senior middle school correspondent. I like saying nice. the senior there, especially. That's big time, Because nobody wants to just be the regular uh, oh, no. middle school correspondent. Nah, nah. Come on now. <laughs> uh, uh, but of course, we're going to start off with um, with a fascinating do now. We've got some headlines. We're going to talk yep. about all the juicy news in education that regular media wasn't telling you about. Exactly. That you need to know about because, you know, these are important stories. Yeah. Yeah. Can't wait. All right. Up next is our do now. All right, folks, now it's time for the Do Now. Let's take a look at some recent headlines in education. Jeff, how are we doing the Do Now today? Well, Manuel, uh, we have a lexicon today, and I think, hmm. um, you know, we were, well, you are a social studies teacher. I was a social studies teacher. We know the importance of vocabulary yeah. uh, as a fundamental building block of all learning, so we're going to get into some vocabulary today. Dope. Yeah, let's Sounds do it. Sounds good. It's all the right. first lexicon term today, Jeff. Here we go, Manuel. Our first term today... Grub. Mmm, grub. Grub. I, I, could, I could use some food right now. That's the type of grub you're talking about, right? I was thinking we're going more like, um, like nascent infant 
flies, you know, like a larva. Yeah, we don't do that on this show, Jeff. That Grubs. will be for a uh, science or biology podcast, <laughs> perhaps. Yes. Okay, grub. Here we go. Uh, grub as in, yeah, you know, like hungry, right? We're going yeah. uh, to throw down a little bit, or at least you might. Uh, if um, the advice that's given uh, by a recent article published in Chalkbeat coming out of New York City um, mm. with results of an interesting study about the effects of universal free school lunch mm. on student achievement has anything to do with it. Nice. So here we go. Uh, a new study out of Syracuse University's Center for Policy Research assessed the impact of universal free lunch on students who previously didn't have access to a universal uh, free lunch program. Now, the researchers found statistically significant bumps in reading and math test scores once students attended a school with universal free lunch. So uh, for folks in our audience, um, you know, hopefully everyone's aware that we have for a long time had a certain set of students, particularly the lowest income students who right. qualify for free lunch. Um, but in the United States, where we have lots of people uh, who are lower on the income spectrum, yeah. there's this other slice of students who are not qualifying for free lunch, um, and, but maybe still struggling to provide lunch uh, you know, for, for their student. Um, and so this study, I think, is maybe shedding some light on, on the, the larger impacts of moving to a policy of saying school lunch is free for everyone. So Manuel, what are your thoughts? You are a, a, a teacher. You see kids sixth period right after lunch, right? Or fifth period, whatever it is. Uh, what do you think here? So yeah, this, this study, this, so the study was out of Syracuse uh, University Center for Policy Research. You might have said that, I might have missed that. But um, what I really appreciate is that they found statistically significant impacts of providing universal free lunch for everybody, even students who didn't qualify for free lunch before. So as a teacher, you know, I, this reminded me of a field trip that I took years back. And, um, you know, the uh, cafeteria workers needed us to submit the students' lunch numbers for the students who are on free or reduced lunch so that we could get a, a bag lunch for them. So not everybody on the field trip qualified for that. So we had a certain number of bag lunch from the cafeteria that particular year. And it really highlighted the stigma associated with being that kid that mm -hmm. gets the free lunch. So one of the co-authors of the study, uh, Amy Ellen Schwartz, um, you know, she, she pointed out that the big takeaway is that if we make lunch free, kids do better in school and not just the kids who um, were qualifying for free or reduced lunch, but those who didn't qualify before, um, that stigma of going and being the one to grab the free lunch is gone because now everybody gets a free lunch, even those who um, income-wise don't, don't qualify. So reducing that stigma means students are eating more, presumably, and of course, with eating more, they're in a better uh, physical state to, to learn. And this is example number 3,401 of the fact that you could raise test scores without necessarily having to strip back electives and double up on math and English and do all these you know, super rigorous academic things. Sometimes raising test scores can come down to something like making sure the students are healthy. Having, having meals. Ate that day, <laughs> yes. So, yes. So, you know. Yeah, sounds great to me. Yeah, I, so it is one of those things that maybe comes across as like, duh, how do we not know this? But right. I think where, be, where maybe the nuance is in the story is the kind of social yeah. uh, dynamics that play out in a situation where 
everyone has access to the same food and uh, there's no stigma attached, right? Which, which apparently I, uh, seems to, and I would imagine, results in just more people eating, period. Right. Right? And that the fact that more people are eating means students are better positioned to focus, feel comfortable, you know, not have headaches, not yeah. be tired, right? In those last two, three periods of the day, in most uh, secondary schools at least, after lunch, um, when teachers know those can be some of the toughest periods yep. to teach in the day, and uh, you know, and where we want to be doing everything we can to stack the deck in our favor of right. you know keeping kids engaged, right? Um, so you know, I think I think it's a really interesting uh, story for for that fact. I think also what was interesting to me is that they they noted at the end of of the chalkbeat article that the mm. study did not find similar. Uh, effects around providing universal school breakfast, hmm. which I thought was interesting. They didn't yeah. explain much, so you know, I, uh, there's not a lot of data we have here to right. to report back on that. But um, but that stood out hmm. to me because I wondered why there would be such a big distinction between these significantly positive yeah. results with free lunch, and, but not with with free breakfast. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, as a high school teacher, I could only guess what that has something to do with students arriving in time for that free breakfast. But that you know, at the high school level, I'm having, you know, students are bringing themselves to school on public transportation or whatever and, and sometimes barely make it in time for class, let alone early enough to grab their free lunch. But that's just my own anecdotal experience as a high school teacher. Um, so yeah, I'm definitely curious about that. Um, I would like to add though that, um, you know, if you're watching this video on YouTube, it's, it's likely that there's already a uh, thumbs down on it because we seem to get one single thumbs down on most of the videos that we post. And we suspect- Betsy. We suspect- We see you. Betsy uh, DeVos is the one behind it. But, um, you know, uh, the Trump administration, so, you know, her, her superiors have actually um, proposed cutting the amount of free lunch that is, is, is out there. So not, on, not moving, not only not moving towards universal, but actually cutting back from what's right. already there. So uh, they proposed, uh, looking at a change in the eligibility for free or reduced lunch in order to save 90 million a year, which is about two thousandths of one percent of the total federal budget. But of course, we know the Trump administration is very, very, very much focused on cutting costs and being fiscally responsible. Well, correct? Yeah. Or, I mean, they've only run up like nine hundred billion dollars in deficits. So, yeah, but if you trim so enough far this calendar lunches, year, you know, this one calendar year. But you know, those kids and those lunches, man, got to save, got to cut costs. And, yeah, you know, exactly. Make up for that. Exactly. Something. Exactly. These people hate children, man. Yeah. I'm convinced. Like they really don't like kids. And there are likely people who've heard the story or are watching the story or listening. Um, actually, I don't think any of our listeners would think this, but there are people out there who 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 say, well. You know, it's not the job of schools to feed kids. That's up to their folks, their parents. And if they're not doing it, like that's on them. Um, and, you know, I can't help but reject any notion that, uh, especially for children, especially children living below the poverty line, that like they should be punished somehow and not offered free lunch when they show yeah. up. Like, you know, we just hate the poor in this country. And that's I, a tragedy. Yeah. So I'll tell you what, I agree Mm -hmm. That it is crazy that we yeah. rely on schools as institutions to that feed is true. children. So we can agree on that. But then, of course, the rest yeah. of the conversation is how do we ensure every how do we ensure every family in this country has enough money and enough yeah. access to good, healthy, nutritious food in their neighborhood? You know, a walkable, yeah. a short, drivable distance from home that they can actually 
feed their children three healthy meals a day. Yeah. So if you want to have, uh, you know, let's let's talk twenty dollar minimum wage. Let's talk about, you know, uh, uh, community um, produce socialism, co-ops Jeff. in every community. Socialism. I know wild freebies crazy. for everybody, Jeff. Why imagine, work? Why work? Imagine the radical notion of everyone having access to food and clothes and shelter. It is. It is. That's crazy. I know. I should relax. It's a crazy world out there, yeah. Jeff. Yeah. All right. Next lexicon term. Next up, we have targeted. Mm, targeted. So I'm thinking like, um, you know, like uh, precise, uh, you know, like GPS. Mm. We're going to we're going to target something so we get yeah. it exactly, you know, minutes, longitude and latitude. Targeted. Yeah, maybe uh, in the if you want to look at it in the sense of a 15 uh, year old high school girl feeling that her school has mm. targeted her for speaking out against sexual violence on campus. Mm. I don't know if that's GPS. I, mean, I don't think GPS will be, let you uh, target a uh, Might be a slightly different there. understanding of the term targeted. Slightly let's, different. Let's get into it. So a 15-year-old girl in Maine was suspended for bullying after trying to draw attention to what she believed was an under-addressed problem of sexual assaults at her high school campus. Now, this story, uh, we got it from uh, the Associated Press, and the student in question, Ayla Mansman, um, is a sophomore at Cape Elizabeth High School, and she was suspended after posting a note in the restroom that read, quote, there's a rapist in our school, and you know who it is. She and two other girls who left similar notes were also suspended, and along with the ACLU, she is taking her school and district to court, basically saying that she's been targeted and that she has taken a public stance as an ally for victims and survivors of sexual violence. Jeff, what do you think about this 15-year-old being suspended over putting up that note in the restroom? So, man, well, I, uh, you know, I don't think that this student should have been suspended. Mm -hmm. I think uh, that what the student is expressing, and, and as I understand it, also there were three other students who were right. suspended whose names have not been released. Of course, Ayla is a minor, so typically, uh, you know, names yeah. of students wouldn't be released. Um, but Ayla, as the public face of this, uh, mm -hmm. currently, I don't think she should have been suspended. I, I think that um, the the school district's perspective here, that there is apparently a male student, uh, this coming from a, a statement from the principal, whose name uh, is Jeffrey Shedd, said in a letter to the community that a male student believed he was the target of the note campaign and that he felt unsafe at school in the wake of the notes. Now, Ayla and apparently other students have maintained that they intentionally did not put a particular student's, right. any particular student's name on it and that they're more largely doing issue advocacy here. So I think, uh, to me, it does not cross the, the boundary of something where the student should have been suspended. It's certainly speaking about a very relevant issue, uh, an issue that we need absolutely to talk much more about out, particularly uh, in our high schools, right? So that we don't, hopefully, see the kinds of really troubling statistics we see around sexual assaults, sexual harassment, etc., at the college level, right? Yeah. Um, like we, you know, we we need to talk to kids about it before they get there, before yeah. they begin, uh, you know, before most students begin engaging in sexual behavior with others, right? Um, and so I think it's well within the bounds of speech that should be protected. Um, on the other hand, I do think the school has a legitimate interest in investigating the situation and saying, like, you know, is there any adverse effect on, on another student? Now, not knowing all the particulars about this, this uh, male student who says he felt targeted, you know, some questions come to mind to me, like, 
does this male student have a reason to feel uh, targeted, yeah. right? Um, and are there larger issues at play in the school where these incidences are happening or precursor kinds of lower level incidences are happening and going unaddressed? Um, and to what extent Ayla and her friends or her you know, colleagues here are uh, are simply just touching the nerve, yeah. <laughs> right? That uh, is letting the school district know we have some work to do, yeah. right? Um, so I don't agree with her suspension. I think her case, I would actually not be surprised if her case actually prevailed in the end. Hmm. So there was a walkout at her school. About 50 students in support of Ayla um, walked out of classes in protest of this suspension. And I think it really highlights the fact that schools not just schools, obviously, but schools are for sure having to grapple with the reality of um, the Me Too era and what it looks like when a girl on campus accuses another student or another teacher of sexual assault or harassment or anything of the like. Because the reality is uh, across the nation, across our industry, across our field of work, there are many, many, many women teachers, but when we look at administrators, there's a predominance of men administrators. And here you have a male principal suspending a student for what she says is, is uh, showing herself as an ally. And uh, the story that we pulled this from referenced another high school where a student was similarly suspended for complaining about a teacher's behavior. And it turned out years later, that teacher was involved in inappropriate relationships with girls on campus. And that teacher was subsequently fired and that student suspension had been expunged or whatever. But when you have a whole bunch of male administrators running around, not taking claims like this seriously or not knowing what to do and just, you know, reaching for that, like, oh, well, this, this note is, is causing a problem and this, this student here feels bullied by it, so you're suspended. Um, that's really a problem. And I think having uh, male overrepresentation in leadership roles in education because of the history of patriarchy and misogyny in our, in, our, in our field is not helping our field adjust to the reality of what the Me Too, Me Too movement represents in yeah. terms of um, being able to speak out and call out abusers. Yeah, I agree. And I think here's, so here's, I think what it really boils down to, to, to me. Mm -hmm. Let's say that Ayla and her friends were actually, you know, in some kind of, um, you know, uh, sort of underhanded way trying to target this particular male student, right? Mm -hmm. Even in that case, I still think as, a, as an administrator, how do you respond to this situation, right? Like clearly these are young women who are addressing a plague of, an ish, of a right. justice issue in our society, right? That needs to be addressed. That school absolutely has an important role to play in helping to address. And your response is to suspend her, right? And right. silence this speech. Like I don't see how that's helpful. Right. I really don't. And so I think even if what your concern is, is that, hey, the, the putting up of these kind of um, potentially incendiary notes on the wall. Right. Uh, maybe it's creating a situation that's not helpful because it's just turning a rumor mill. And like, right. you know, we work in high schools like yeah. stuff happens when rumors, you know, fly. Yeah. Right. Um, but at least engage with her and let's think about how, you know, so what what would what can we do in the school yeah. and how might we elevate her leadership in this work to help address these issues? Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so instead of ostracizing her and challenging her, you know, bring her into the fold, build on what she's talking about. Right. Like it's a real opportunity to engage students about something they clearly care about and are passionate yeah. about and that is obviously right for us to address. So it seems like at best 
you know, at best, this is just like a, a real missed opportunity. Big time missed opportunity. And, you know, if what she was alleging is true, think about the girls on campus who, I mean, she got suspended for putting out a note that something is going on. Yeah. So if she got suspended just for that, imagine what the um, other girls are camp on campus are thinking about what their outlook might be if they took the further step, which is to actually right. call out the individual, um, you know, that, that um, violated them. Yeah. You know, that's just this principle, yeah, in my not, opinion, is just like making it to where no one's gonna wanna say anything there. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, it's not I a good look. Not a good look. <laughs> yeah. All right, next story, next lexicon term. What do we have, Jeff? All right, man, well, next lexicon term is damaged. Damaged. Damaged, damaged. Well, um, there are definitely some damaged um, futures at this school that we were just talking about in terms of all this, mm. all this craziness. I don't know if this story is at all related to uh, suspensions on campuses mm. or anything like that. Uh, it certainly is. Most certainly is. And is before we get into the details, though, I think we got to give a little bit of shout out uh, here because this story uh, comes to us via the Harvard Graduate School of Education, which just so happens hmm. to be the uh, intellectual uh, stomping grounds of uh, the two hosts here on All the Above. Indeed. So shout out to the folks in Cambridge. Uh, you know, we, uh, we appreciate being able to share some good stories from, uh, yeah. from our school. Um, and so, so let's get into it, right? Yeah. Damaged, funny we should be talking about suspension, two stories in a row here. Yeah. So a new working paper recently published by the National Bureau of Economic Research reports that schools with higher suspension rates have substantial negative long-run impacts. Now, in some ways, this is nothing new. We've thought yeah. about this and talked. We did a whole episode around yeah, this yeah. back in season one. But here's some new interesting, uh, new interesting wrinkles. Um, suspensions do not have a statistically significant impact on positive student achievement overall. And we've long heard from folks that mm -hmm. uh, you know the the purpose of suspensions is to keep everything orderly so that achievement can you know can continue. Um, these researchers did not corroborate that finding. Um, they found no long-term benefits of suspensions were found in any represented subgroup, right? Um, so this is a fascinating finding, Manuel. Yeah. And uh, among several things in this story, which I think we'll unpack, but what do you think? Yeah, so this is a really interesting story uh, in terms of its research methods, because I think, you know, we, like you said, we've long discussed the impact that suspensions have. And of course, school to prison pipeline is not a controversial uh, phrasing or term um, at all these days. But this study was able to look at a district in North Carolina, a pretty large district that um, redistricted. And that gave the researchers a perfect opportunity to see what impact having a higher suspension rate type of school might have on a student. Because here you had a student population, some of whom were in schools with high suspension rates, and now they're being moved to other schools that had lower suspension rates. Some were coming from the lower suspension rate going to a higher suspension rate school. And some, of course, were staying in, in uh, the same school. And the researchers found that the suspension rates at these schools didn't really change much after this redistricting. So the, the suspension rates had a lot more to do with policy and leadership than they did the actual kids in the building, which is one uh, one level of, of I guess, um, interesting, uh, well, one interesting nugget about the story. Um, but also what they found were students, even those who weren't being 
suspended. Those who were at schools with, who had higher suspension rates, um, there were negative outcomes for them. And having more students being suspended did not make the learning environment something to where achievement um, rose because of that. It did not make the learning environment more conducive to uh, higher test scores mm -hmm. at all. And teacher after teacher from coast to coast will tell you that one of the big things that you grapple with as a teacher is that decision to maybe send a student out of class. Because on the one hand, that's not solving anything and you wanna give the student your best shot and give them every opportunity. But on the other hand, you gotta think about the other students in the room and how their education is being impacted. And this study found that that mindset of having a student leave the classroom through suspension, through whatever, was not actually conducive to high, uh, heightened academic achievement for the rest of the students. So that's, um, that's new. Yeah. So I think that's a really fascinating new finding. The other thing, or one of the other things about the story I thought was really interesting that gives some new context to the, you know, I think districts across the country are like, we, we need to reduce suspension rates. Right. And there, there are pros and cons to that as you, using suspension rate as a measure of school culture and school yeah. safety, right? Because it's very easy to move without actually changing any of the culture inside of a school. But um, one of the co-authors of the study, uh, a guy named Andrew Bacher Hicks uh, from Harvard, said one of the arguments in favor of suspensions is that if a student is removed from the classroom, they're no longer causing disruptions, and so removing disruptive students could have positive benefits on those who remain in the classroom. But we found for all students, there are large negative impacts on later life outcomes related to attending a school with a high suspension rate. That suggests there are not overwhelmingly positive benefits to removing disruptive peers from the classroom. So the, the longitudinal nature of the study yeah. and, dis, and discovering that, as we have long thought, that students who are repeatedly suspended um, are more likely to experience incarceration later in life, they were able to test in this very unique context, which is take a kid who earlier in their educational career had been in a school with higher suspensions, yeah. move them into a school with lower suspensions, and they still experienced a greater likelihood of being yeah. incarcerated later in life, right? Even yeah. after being placed in a different school, right? So even early exposure that gets mitigated, hopefully by a better educational environment, um, st that those negative effects can stay with a student over the long term. And I think that's a very new piece yeah. of the study here that we haven't uh, maybe um, been able to not only discuss statistically, but also test in this, you yeah. know, this sort of interesting experimental way because Charlotte Mecklenburg redistricted, right. right? And so you got to kind of have these control groups uh, or comparison groups yeah. at least to, to measure against. So fascinating uh, aspect of the study there also. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it just reminds us that not only do we have to look at policies regarding suspensions, but as an individual teacher, you know, it's really important to dig deep and do some reflection and reach out for uh, resources to help um, when it comes down to that classroom management decision of so-and-so is acting up and so-and-so is out of control. And what am I going to do besides send him out? I actually had a recent conversation with a teacher that I'm pretty close to um, about a student that um, is just really, really, really just all over the place in terms of, be, you know, movement and behavior. And it's totally fine kid, but just like so much energy and just, you know, gets up and does this, does that, always touching other, um, touching things around the room and this and that. And, and this teacher was talking about how that student and other students in the room were questioning, like, why don't you just send him out? Why don't you send him out? Send him out, send him out. 
and that teacher is is working hard to not have that be the go-to mm -hmm. because for one the student is used to being sent out all the time but also just this this idea that you know doing that has such a negative impact on that student but also the class is asking for that student to be sent out and you send that student out, it's also reinforcing this idea that that is the solution for when somebody's so-called out of line or whatever. And this study shows that being a student in those type of rooms and just seeing that, even if you're not the one who's suspended, that is reinforcing um, or that is setting you up for um, not positive outcomes necessarily because it is sending several messages to you, one being that school might be a punitive place. Mm. And that's not the message that we want to send kids. So, um, so yeah. Interesting study. Yeah. For sure. Fascinating stuff. And um, I will say, though, one thing you said earlier that mm -hmm. we don't have time to get into today, but I, I think we're going to have to come back to this as a topic in one of our uh, upcoming episodes, is the term school to prison pipeline, which is a very popular term. Mm -hmm. But I want to trouble the waters around do the Do you want to trouble I the do. waters? I do. I do. I, Just like you wanted to with opportunity gap? It, very, gap? In a very similar way, in mm. fact. Yes, right. in a very similar way. I think, uh, mm. yes, we have a problem with mass incarceration in this country. We do. Period. End of sentence. It's super racist. Period. End of sentence. I feel like there's another sentence coming, though. And the root of that problem is not the schools. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, like, like, if we graph... Yeah. Mass incarceration and suspension in schools, they, they did not begin uh, like the, the rise of mass suspensions and zero tolerance policies mm -hmm. did not cause uh, the rise of mass incarceration in this country. Right. The war I on drugs did. That. And that had, oh, yeah, that had sure. you know, very little to do with with classroom discipline policy. So mm. um, there's a whole lot more to talk about there. I don't mean to like drop a bomb and man, run that's away. That's a bomb right there, man. There's people <laughs> writing dissertations right now using that, that but terminology. I, I, I think it's much like the achievement gap and the opportunity mm -hmm. gap. It, it presents us with an opportunity to be more precise with our language um, while naming the very problematic things in our society that we need to fix. More precise with our language, which is sort of the cornerstone or the... Uh, the, the main goal of having a lexicon Indeed. style Indeed. do now. So that precision with our language is important. Words do matter. And um, we're going to revisit that because that's, we got, <laughs> we're going to talk about that. Yeah. The prison, uh, pipeline. But up next, we do have our uh, seminar, which for today, you know, some, there are many, many folks out there who, who left the teaching profession for um, reasons that might be related to student behavior and suspensions and, and, and conditions. Others who um, had low points for, for reasons not related to student behavior, but we are gonna take a moment to talk about career tra trajectories and times where you really ask yourself or question whether or not teaching or working in education is for you um, for all the various reasons out there. So stay tuned, seminar segment about our low points in teaching. All right, folks, welcome to today's seminar. Uh, I am excited to have with us today our official senior middle school correspondent, none <laughs> other than Genevieve Dubose Akinagbe. Yeah. You've seen her here before. She's back, uh, brilliant mind and experienced <laughs> educator, uh, working with young people and teachers uh, from New York to LA and back again. Yes. Um, and she is here with us today. So uh, very excited to have you, Genevieve. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Yeah. yeah. 
So today's conversation is, I think, a, a really interesting one um, because it's really more about the, the, the professional growth and experience of educators. And uh, I think it's fair to say, particularly folks who have worked in, uh, you know, in really um, dynamic, complex, uh, urban, Title I, low income, whatever adjective you want to put on it, <laughs> but in school contexts where, uh, you know, the school is asked to carry lots of, um, you know, of the work of meeting the needs of the community, um, that that comes with a certain uh, a certain set of challenges and a certain yeah. uh, set of tolls as educators. Mm -hmm. And we sometimes get in that place of being in a funk or, you know, questioning, is this the right path for me? You know, uh, did I make the right choice? Uh, and here we are, three people who have <laughs> navigated those experiences. We and, made it. We made it. And, well, made it is maybe a strong, so <laughs> a strong term. Yes. But we're, we're still here. We're presently yeah. here. Yeah. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and so, Genevieve, I'm wondering if you can uh, maybe start off just telling us a bit about kind of your personal um, journey, your personal story, and um, times when you've confronted maybe some of those challenges and, and how you've, uh, you've navigated them. Absolutely. So I, when, when we discussed this topic, I immediately went to my 11th year of teaching, which was my hardest year ever, mm. right? You'd think 11 years, you got it down, you know yeah. what you're doing. But I had been out of the classroom for three years doing policy work and I really mm. missed teaching and I missed being with students and colleagues. So I was like, I'm going back, I'm going back to middle school. And I got my butt kicked all year long by 107th graders like they they worked me up and down it was it was it was the hardest year um, and I and I think I was at a new school I had been out of the game for three years so I forgot a lot of things there were things that you know I think as teachers we just do naturally or we've learned to do that I had forgotten it was also the common core standards had been rolled out in my absence so that was something that was new um, but that year I, I was, I was, my kids were just, not only was, was I out of practice, but I also had a really challenging group of students. So I had a lot of students that had really high needs, like social emotional needs, but also academic needs. Mm -hmm. And I was new to my school community. So, you know, I just, it was tough, but what it forced me to do was I became a much better teacher um, as a result. So part of that was like, I would go home and I, I was like your first year where you're in tears and you're like, what, what is happening? Like I never cried in front of kids, but I did cry at home. And um, what it forced me to do was become really reflective, which I, I'm a reflective practitioner, but I had to go deep um, in that year. And I started by asking my kids, I reached out to my students and I was like, I mean, I said, I don't really know. I, I'm really good at relationships, but mm. I didn't really rock out with my relationships that year. So I kicked off. I had three different cohorts of students and I started like dessert with Miss DeBose. And I went and I said, I'm going to pick one kid from each cohort mm. for the last 20 minutes of lunch. I'm going to invite you upstairs for cookies and sparkling water. And we sat around a table and we tried to figure out four things that we had in common the four of us, right? And it was beautiful. And of course I started with my students that I struggled the most with, right? right, right. And we had really wonderful conversations and that, that worked a little bit, but things weren't improving. And so then I kicked off this um, anonymous Friday feedback form where I was like, let me ask my kids what's working and what's not. And I kid you not, so the, the form had five questions. It was, what do you like about this class and why? What don't you like about this class and why? 
Uh, are you able to learn in this space? Uh, what can your teachers do to make this a better learning space for you? And is there anything else you want to say? <laughs> I would read, I would read that's, that's those. a dangerous, <laughs> dangerous last question. Yeah, what there. else do you want to share? <laughs> oh my gosh, I would read those and like basically cry on the BX19 bus on my way home from work. <laughs> because what do you like about this class? Nothing. What, what don't you like? I mean, what, uh, what don't you like? Everything. Mr. Bose. You know what I'm like? Wow. So, but what I did find, there was one gem. I mean, there were many gems, but one gem that still resonates with me is I had a student say, Mr. Bose, in the, is there anything else you want to share? Question. If students like the work, we'll do it. And wow. that just resonated with me. And so that pushed me to then ask kids, hey, for our, like our third unit, it was going to be all around scholar activism. I was like, I invited every student. I gave them each an invitation for an after-school planning meeting. And I said, for 100 kids, there'll be cookies, there'll be sparkling water, come and help me plan our next unit. And 11 of them showed up. And those 11 kids and I like planned the unit. And they said they wanted more technology. They wanted to pick their groups more. They wanted to like incorporate art. And so that was our most successful unit because they had a say. So like those practices, I would never have done that had my year been going smoothly, you know? Um, but now those are things that like I, di I continued to do. And so it just reminds me that when things are really hard, uh, it really forces us to be creative, right? And, and to also reach out to our kids, which I think we try to do, but sometimes in the daily grind of teaching, we sometimes forget. Yeah. So that was my hardest year. That was my hardest year, guys. And it, it got better, it got better. Yeah. <laughs> and now actually those kids are seniors and I'll go to their high school graduation this June. Oh, so wow. we really bonded. Like after things went down, I got to teach some of them as eighth graders and they stayed at our school because it was a six through 12. So they, we, we had a tight, tight connection, but it was tough. Man. It was yeah. tough, yeah. <laughs> I had kids being like, your mother, all kinds of stuff. It was bad. Oh, wow. Yeah. What about you? What are, yeah, what are... <laughs> When's um, it been tough for you? Yeah, so, I mean, for me, so yours being in the 11th year is actually really interesting because you would think, like, by then, you've made it. Right. Um, so mine was in year five. So mm -hmm. my first four years were back in my hometown of Sacramento. Shout out Sacramento and all my Sacktown peeps. Sacktown. And um, my first four were, were great. I mean, my first year, I know, you know, there's a, a commonality amongst teachers that the first year is just, like, so intense and so difficult. But my first year... I mean, it was intense and a lot of things happened that year. I had a lot of wild things happen in and out of the classroom. But overall, like, it was great. I loved it. And students mm -hmm. really loved my class. And um, I remember my principal at the time saying, like, man, you know, you have a lot of gang members in your class and they really love your class. And <laughs> I was just thinking, like, here, like, the principal sees them as gang members and they're, mm -hmm. they're not, not quite. They're students. <laughs> yeah. uh, but in any case, um, but yeah, everyone loved my class. I loved um, being there. My four years were actually really smooth. And... Um, the only thing is I, I really got tired of living in Sacramento. I grew up there and I was just, you know, as a young professional, especially at the time, um, you know, I was just bored and mm -hmm. wanted to come back down to Southern California where I went to undergrad at UCLA. So I came down and there's um, a school that was reconstituting and I didn't really know what that meant. But at the time, you know, the, that's 2008 and the economy was starting to go south and there weren't a lot of teaching jobs available anywhere really. So when I was looking for teaching jobs across LA, it was all charter schools. And um, I just didn't want to step into a charter school in LA without knowing much about the organization or, or any of the context around it. 
Um, so the one public school that I found that was hiring high school, traditional public school, was reconstituting. So the whole staff was um, being made to reapply for their positions, mm -hmm. and the schools being broken up into three uh, academies, and a whole lot, a whole lot was happening. But it sounded like an excellent opportunity to be part of like change and, and reform from some, you know, somewhat like the ground up in terms of coming in, and it's like a fresh start for everybody in terms of academy structure, admin, teachers, and everything, um, and. All of that change actually was a lot more difficult than I anticipated it being. Mm -hmm. So stuff that was easy in my previous school in terms of me just having a certain demeanor in class and students really like um, responding well to that. Here it was just like, nah, like they none, none of the little tricks I used to work <laughs> that used to work in my first four years worked here, and um, my my management was just a mess. Like mm -hmm. it was just chaotic, yeah. and I remember thinking like. Walking into it, everyone's talking about how quote unquote bad the school is and how crazy it is. It's now all these like, and I'm like, man, my principal said I'm good with gang members. I'm good. <laughs> and, um, and it wasn't even that, like there wasn't in, you know, any violence or anything like that, but it was just a matter of like, what they said was there was some truth to it. That students were definitely having to adjust to all the newness, all the new faces, the new structure. It was block scheduling, um, new academies, all that stuff. And me just, using the same methods that worked previously that just blew up in my face. Mm. And I remember one particular class of sophomores, um, I had them, this is the block after lunch, and it was just always so loud and so messy, and my roster was changing on a daily basis, mm. four in, four out, and it was just all this. And I remember my lunch periods just like trying to take a deep breath and just trying to like, calm myself because yeah. my anxiety would peak and it, every day was something different kids trying to fight each other mm -hmm. um kids just totally not like ignoring like i have a teacher nightmare that i'm sure a lot of teachers have which is like you're trying to do any kind of lesson and like no one seems to hear you and it's just a complete <laughs> mess i don't know if any of y'all have ever had that teacher nightmare but that was like the reality like life. students just yeah. like being oblivious to me being there in my previous school i could like do the tough love thing and like, you know, I need you to do this, that, da, 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 and they'd step up to a hero. It's just like, yeah, whatever. Mm -hmm. So I remember come November, I was like, you know what? Maybe my previous experience was just not accurate. Maybe I'm not a good teacher. No. And cause I tried everything. I mean, I, I, I tried everything that I, you know, I was reading up on different types of techniques and, and trying to really uh, adjust and um, nothing was working. And I remember during my periods off, come November, I was looking for other work, like mm. straight up, and not in education. Right. I was just thinking like, oh. man, it'd be so much easier just to be in a cubicle somewhere. <laughs> like that would be so much easier. And I remember looking, and again, it was a great recession or the beginning of it, so there was nothing available. Mm -hmm. One job that I almost applied for was um, being a trainer for Chevron gas stations, like training like folks on, I don't know what, but I was like, training, that's <laughs> kind of, <laughs> kind of teaching maybe that's something yeah. that and, is a um, low point man it was a low point <laughs> no and, disrespect uh, to the chevron employees out no, there for but sure i, I just for can't sure. imagine you as a chevron trainer i was I like know. yo that'll be a you know i'm just dealing with a couple adults and then then i'll figure out my life after that yeah. and uh, but no it was a really 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 low point nothing i was you know nothing i was saying was seemed to get through and now looking back um a lot of those students I'm still in contact with. Um, I had them sophomores, but then I had them again as juniors and seniors. So eventually, you know, the whole, it gets better. It got a lot better, partly because there was so much um, turmoil and transition during that time. There were a lot of students on campus who really needed uh, services above and beyond what our campus could offer. So mm -hmm. my, my class, I had to like, 
you know, a class of sophomores, but I had a lot of like 19 year olds, 20 year olds, almost 20 year olds who just were um, credits wise, just like no business being in a traditional high school because that for sure wasn't the place that they'd be able to succeed in. And it was just really chaotic. So once some of that chaos died down and once the rosters became a little more uh, consistent on a day to day basis, and once students realized that I'm not leaving, when I realized yeah. that I'm not leaving, yeah. <laughs> and also once I began to learn a lot more about the students and their, uh, what they were coming in with, um, we sort of met like a kind of happy place in the spring. Mm. And um, by the end of that year, um, I got laid off because it was a great recession, first of three layoffs. But um, by the end of that year, it was really like, you know what, this is the place for me. And uh, we had some rough patches and it seemed like the students, it's kind of sounds similar to your story, like the students sort of realized it, you sort of realized it. Mm -hmm. And um, adjustments were made and Two years later, I was like in probably the peak of my career in terms of everything going great and me loving it and students loving me. So, yeah, dark days dark for day. sure, <laughs> for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, it's interesting to hear both of your stories as as uh, as someone who's probably the the furthest from the classroom uh, in, in the group here. Um, you know, and I, I, I entered teaching knowing that I wanted to be a principal and knowing that yeah. uh, that um, for me, teaching was uh, it felt like a really important foundational experience. Right. But um, but I had this, you know, I'd had this principal in high school who really inspired me. And and I mm -hmm. kind of came into it thinking I wanted to be a principal. Um, and I started teaching it just, uh, it was in many ways a, a, a great place because there was a small, close-knit cohort of adults that really cared, but it was a super dysfunctional school that wound up yeah. being being closed and mm. uh, frankly, deservedly so. Mm. And uh, I remember my at the end of my first year of teaching, um, the, we had graduation and uh, it it had been earlier that week that, so it was a high school that was located inside of a junior high school in East Harlem. And the junior <laughs> high school had had graduation. And I grew up in the Midwest where um, like middle school graduations, kindergarten graduations, like they're really not a big deal, at, right, least, right, at right. least where I grew up, right? So, you know, people come, you take pictures or whatever, but there's not like families pulling up in limos and like, oh. like it's not a big deal, right? Yeah. Like grandma does not come to town for eighth grade graduation, <laughs> um, and and in New York it's a whole different ballgame. Like eighth grade York, graduation, yes. like people do it big. <laughs> so I saw all these kids in caps and gowns and like folks dressed up in suits and stuff, and I was like, oh, I guess in New York, like graduations are just a big deal. <laughs> so fast forward about a week, and the high school that I was working at in the same building right. has graduation, and we had seven students graduate. Now this was a small high school. But still, it was a high school with 300, you know, oh. maybe 330 kids, right? And we had seven students Damn. on stage. And I, it was literally the most depressing thing I've ever oh. seen in my entire yeah. life. And, and, wow. uh, and so I'm in this auditorium looking around like, am I the only one that sees the insanity <laughs> of what's happening? Like, right. we just watched a whole junior <laughs> high school with caps and gowns. And here we are with seven kids on, that are mm. like Damn. on stage. Mm. Right. Like they fit on stage mm. <laughs> because yeah. there's only seven of them. Yeah. And uh, so that was just the most depressing thing I'd ever seen, literally. So I, right after the ceremony, I got up, I walked out, I walked around the block. So the, the school was kind of nestled in a set of housing projects. So it was like a big block. So mm -hmm. I I walked all the way around the block. I sat down. One corner of it was like a little park. 
So I sat down in the park and I called my dad. And I was like, I just saw the craziest thing like I've ever seen. Like, I don't know, maybe I made the wrong choice, uh, you know, in my profession. And I had been debating whether to go to law school or whether to go to ed school. Mm. Um, and, you know, do I want to be like Thurgood Marshall or do I want to be, you know, uh, an educator? And um, I had really thought that I had made the right choice, but that I think was the closest time I've ever come to being like, mm. maybe Chevron is yeah. hiring. Like, I'm yeah. not sure. I'm, I'm just, yeah. I might be doing the wrong thing here. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. you know, thankfully we, we had a conversation and kind of just worked through it a bit. But, um, but that, I think to me, that was like my darkest moment as an educator. Mm. Um, you know, that really made me, had me on the mm. brink. Uh, but thankfully, <laughs> you know, I was able to walk back and find a much, much better path as an educator to be on. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're grateful that you did not go to law school. Uh, I'm I mean, that's probably too. a good yeah. thing. You could have, you would have done education law probably. I might, yeah, I, I, I mean, I was definitely on the like civil rights yeah. law trajectory, um, but I'm, I am yeah. glad I didn't, yeah. I didn't go that route now, or I'm happy, I should say, that I, yeah. I stuck it out in education. But so hearing all of us talk, I think mm -hmm. there's, um, I think in some ways this kind of phenomenon of like grappling with really challenging situations, being in a context where maybe the supports are not quite there. Um, mm -hmm. uh, is very common for people in our field. So I'm wondering if now as more wise, more uh, sophisticated sages, mm -hmm. as an official middle school correspondent <laughs> here. here, Senior. 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 Oh, yeah, respect that Senior title. middle school correspondent, uh, uh, you know, Genevieve. <laughs> I'm wondering uh, maybe some of your thoughts about, you know, as a profession, what can we do better so that fewer people are having the kinds of experiences that we just, yeah. just described? You know, I, I mean, I feel like there's this, that's such a loaded question because there's so much that we can do a better job of in education. Um, but when I think about what has sustained me most, um, honestly, it's been breaks. Like I've mm. had opportunities to not be teaching, whether I was doing something connected to education or whether I was in um, like a hybrid role, that has actually been incredibly powerful in sustaining me in this work because um, this is hard work, right? And if right. you're day, I, I think of folks I know who are career educators 30 years in and they've been a teacher for 30 years straight. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm like, wow, like that, I started teaching 20 years ago, like in 1999, but that of those 20 years, I've only been in the classroom 14 years, mm. right? I've had six years of breaks, right? right? Like where I was either doing policy work or even in the role that I'm in now as a literacy coach, right? That feels like a break to me because the intensity of teaching is, is so deep that right. you need a mental break. And so I think if our profession were structured in a way where teachers could have like, why not have a teacher teach for five years and then have a year at the district office, like, you know, learn, like being a teacher perspective around or learning how the district works, right? That's going to inform the people, the folks at the district and the decisions they make, but also it's going to inform that teacher's practice when they go back to the classroom, right? Yeah. Or, or in roles where you could be, even if you were teaching, you know, 75% of the time, 
but the other 25% of the time you're working on family engagement for your school, right? Like that's a, a type of a break that I think would not only inform best practices at the school, but also create a more sustainable profession because you do teachers, the, the best teachers I know are continual learners and like we want to keep learning and we want to keep growing and you do grow a ton in the classroom and there are lots of op- like education is such a multifaceted field that there are so many other ways to grow, you know, and I wish I wish I see pockets of, of places doing some of that work, but I wish like that was just the norm nationally in education that that we were giving teachers opportunities to use their expertise and learn outside of the classroom, knowing that you're coming back. You know, it's like that it's a cycle that it's you don't you don't have to be there for 20 years straight unless that's what you want. Right. right. But if that's not what you want and, you know, hey, I want to learn this, too. But my heart's with kids. That's, you know, I think that would build more sustainability in our profession as one way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think a similarity that exists between our three stories is that we're each working in a community that's marginalized with this population that had a host of challenges that um, they needed to get support with. Um, so I know for me in my class, what really helped me was mentorship from other educators at the school, especially educators of color who were more familiar with the community <clears throat> than I was. Mm-hmm. So um, when I think about what more can be done within our profession to help sustain and help empower teachers throughout and, and not feel this this sense of just like throwing your hands up like nothing's working or nothing's um, no, this just isn't possible for me is for one having more educators of color who are coming from a similar perspective uh, so for me I was walking in even though this was not my community I saw it as very similar to the community I grew up in mm-hmm. however like I was coming in as an outsider period. So even though, you know, my first four years, that community, I grew up there. So I knew people, people knew me, like I, I had that extra context that helped me be um, successful and tap in and build those relationships with students. Here, after those first four, uh, four years when I moved, it was more of a, like, I'm an outsider and I don't know anybody and I don't understand the dynamics and the connections here. So for example, I wasn't used to the, uh, the conflict that existed between two specific demographics um, on our school side at that time. Um, but I had to mentors to, um, I'll shout them out right now, uh, Mr. Harrison, Mr. Bynum, um, who had been here for, I mean, Harrison grew up here and Bynum was working here for a long, long time. They've each since retired. Um, but both of them like really pulled me aside and really helped me out in terms mm-hmm. of understanding this, that, and whatever. So one student that I had, um, who I'm still in contact with, um, who was especially challenging, like, you know, I called home on the kid, this, that, whatever, but Harrison let me know, like, yo, just so you know, his father is, is gone for life and his mother is incarcerated at the moment and he's bouncing around between this home and that home. And I'm, I'm saying this now because um, this student has spoken about it plenty and he actually recently had a uh, interview on YouTube where he was talking about that year, that 10th grade year, and me and Bynum and Harrison trying to help him mm-hmm. out. Uh, so he's Carl Holmes, I'll shout him out. And um, I didn't know this context, I didn't know all this that he was dealing with outside. And of course, you know, working in a marginalized community, um, there's a lot of trauma, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, factors beyond your control. That, and we do our best to be ready for that and to learn how to uh, establish, uh, obviously, tra- trauma-informed practices, but also uh, that relational capacity to help students out in that context. But in my fifth year, I was still really new at any of that. And mm-hmm. it was just, it really was overwhelming me. So having other educators of color in the building and getting their advice and their help and being able to team up with them on particular students. So as the school year trans, uh, continued and as the 
just the transition and, and every, everything was started to settle down some, you know, I became more familiar with the other teachers in the building. They became more familiar with me and we were able to uh, coordinate efforts on particular students, which also, which also helped. Uh, so for me, when I think about schools where the staff is continually rotating, where, um, you know, uh, educators of color in particular um, are coming in, wanting to do the best by the students there and, and help serve maybe the community that they even grew up in, but there's no mentorship there, there's no support from other teachers, and every day, you know, it's somebody else next door to you, next to your classroom. I, I think that is beyond overwhelming, and I think that's where um, a lot of the work would need to be done in terms of making sure, like you shared in, the, I think it was a show and tell um, in season two, where you talked about uh, the need for high quality teachers um, in every classroom, but particularly classrooms with the highest need, mm -hmm. like that being a, a, um, a focus and that being an area where we really pay particular attention to investments being made in certain schools and making sure that you don't have teachers. I know you've discussed previously having teachers who are just not interested in way over the hill and, and admin being locked in and not being able to really do something with that particular teacher that you know is doing more harm than good. Um, and, and looking at those practices and seeing how can we make sure that in these most high need environments that we have the best quality teachers that the district can find right there uh, with the right support and connections and mentors around to, to help them out. So that's yeah. where I go when I think about like what could be done to, you know, that would have helped me definitely avoid that, hitting that wall and looking for other jobs. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of wisdom uh, has been shared from both of you, um, and I wonder in our in our last couple of minutes here, if you might also bless us with just a little bit more of that wisdom around uh, for maybe some folks in our audience who are educators themselves who are grappling with, uh, you know, maybe some of the same kinds of right. you know um, lower points in their career trajectory, and when you're in those points, you don't you don't have the perspective that like. 30 years from now, you'll look yeah. at you'll look at the graph and it'll be fine, fine, and it'll dip and then it'll be yeah. fine, right? But it doesn't feel like that at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, so what words of wisdom might you offer um, in, in closing to, to educators who are struggling with that themselves? Yeah, I mean, I, I could talk at length about mm -hmm. this, but I won't because we only have a few minutes. Um, but I'll think of, I think of three things. I think of like, find your crew, right? Like kind of like, what Manuel was just saying around the folks that mentored him, but who are the, who are your people? Like who are the, the people that can, you can connect with and feel safe being vulnerable with like, and tap into them. The second thing I'll say is also like, look to your kids, right? Like same for me when I had that really hard year, I, I would not have reached out to my kids the way I did, but our students, we spend the most time with them. Yeah. You know, in, in the, during the school day, they have the best insight as to whether we're doing our job well or not, right? So, so reach out to them as vulnerable as it may feel, like ask for their feedback. And then I'd also say like tap into like your passions and what brings you joy in the profession or just in life. And, and I think a lot of folks are afraid to talk with their administrators, but like be up in your principal's office regularly. Like, hey, I have this idea. Like, can we take our kids on this field trip? Or, hey, I want to, like, I'm into theater. Like, can we, can, how can I incorporate theater more in my, you know, like tap into what sustains you and take that because I think principals, I think it's a, it's a benefit for the school as well, right? Like principals run out of, they don't have the same view that a teacher has. So it helps them if you're reaching out to them, you know, because then they know their kids and their staff better. So yeah, reach out and bring your passions to, to what you're doing because that makes the work that much more enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, Manuel, uh, we heard from, from Genevieve uh, some thoughts about advice for, uh, for educators out there who may be, may be listening, may be watching, and are, uh, and are in it themselves yeah. and wondering if they made the right choice or if this, right. is, this is the right career to stay in for them. What, what pearls of wisdom what might you offer to them uh, or to folks who are in that situation? Yeah, I would say um, one thing that I would say is that conditions change, well, depending on your school site, depending on your district, uh, conditions change like year by year. Mm -hmm. And the school that I described is not anything like that anymore, you know? So I thought I was going crazy because nothing I was doing was working. And here I was basically looking for other opportunities. And a lot of the issues that were causing those problems were above and beyond my control. And as a lot of those got sorted out, and myself and my students were able to really just settle into the school year. Um, you know, I, I was able to tap back into um, all the things that I loved about teaching. So one thing that I would say to anybody really considering whether or not this is for them or not is to really try to reflect on what is it that is causing the most uh, anxiety or the most amount of like frustration within you and how much of that is something that is a reflection of your individual practices versus the re a reflection of the conditions around you. Um, because if it's about your individual practices, then of course, um, I, would, I would second what Genevieve said about, you know, in terms of um, thinking about yourself, tapping into yourself, reaching out for uh, support from others, and, um, and really rethinking uh, your relationship with the students and what more um, could be done, like, she, like how she reached out to her students and, and legitimately just asked, like, look, what's working, what's not working, what could I do, and, and all of that, you know, that's something that is, is something that I think um, any teacher brave enough to do, uh, or could do. Um, but beyond that, if it's things beyond your classroom, one thing is to remember that it's not just you dealing with it, but it's also the, the students. And I had to keep reminding mm -hmm. myself that for one, it's not personal, and that's, you know, the I think the first bit of like wisdom I got from my uh, mentor teacher when I was student teaching was that it was like, oh yeah, I don't take anything personal. Like they barely know me, so how could it be personal? And when teachers start taking it personal and start internalizing their feelings, then things get, go from bad to worse. And um, you know, I, I have some uh, issues with the the frame, framing of teaching as not being personal because it's very personal in a lot of ways. <laughs> However, um, reminding myself that you know these kids aren't wilding out because they don't like me as a person, and they're not wilding out because of something that I'm doing to them. Like they're dealing with a host of issues. And a lot of this, I mean, they're basically being set up in such a way that like, it'd be amazing if they did sit down and just be perfect students in this particular context. So I had to remind myself that I wasn't crazy at the things that were going on, um, that students were dealing with it too. And it wasn't just me, um, but also reaching out for help, reaching out for mentors. So my two uh, mentors, uh, Harrison and Bynum, that was very informal. Like they were down the hall and they saw the wildness in my classroom and they had some wildness in their own classroom and they were able to pull me aside and sort of give me the context and give me the background and help me out and check in with me and they really built me up and i know that when it comes to educators of color especially black male educators there's a huge shortage across mm -hmm. the country and you might be in a context where you're you don't have some ogs like i had to help me out and help uh, sort me out and help support me and you know that's that's struggling and in that case, you know, I would definitely suggest tapping into uh, educators online and, and joining professional learning communities, uh, learning networks that exist online uh, to get some of that support. So I would say all those things. And I would, I would also say my darkest year was that 2008, 2009 school year. And in a blink of an eye, like I had the peak of my career, which is being awarded the Milk and Educator Award. Um, and that was in 2012. So within three to four mm -hmm. years, my whole everything revolutionized. And 
I loved everything about my school site and I continue to love everything about my school site. And looking back, I would have just missed out on just a joyous, joyous future if I would have just taken that moment of, of, mm -hmm. of whatever desperation and just said, that's it. Um, so yeah, I don't know if any of that made sense, but it's what it I got. Did. It yeah, did. Yeah, it certainly did. <laughs> I, I think the only thing I would probably add to, to what the two of you have said is, uh, and I think in some ways this, what I'm going to say, has become kind of commercialized or something in, in its own way today, in a way that maybe is good, but, but I think also kind of cheapens the importance of it in some ways, which is really uh, self-care. Uh, yes. And I think a lot right. of times as, as educators, I mean, we are, uh, we're not therapists, yeah. but we, we inhabit these like kind of quasi therapeutic mm -hmm. spaces with yeah, kids where they, when they write something that's yeah. like, you know, here's this crazy stuff that's going on in my life. And right. And you're mm -hmm. like, oh, snap. Uh, what am I supposed to do about this? Yeah. Uh, right. Or, um, you know, we're confronting them about some, you know, stupid behavior in the hallways or whatever. And it turns into a thing that then brings mom and dad in and we realize what's happening right mm -hmm. right um and so or doesn't bring mom and dad in right because we realize that you know mom and yeah. dad are not available right yeah. um mm -hmm. or uh whatever the situation may be right and so there's um i think there's there's just so much of the emotional stress that our students are dealing with that mm. that uh comes onto us as educators and that yeah. the families that we're dealing with uh, you know, that comes on to us as educators that we give in order to be supportive, in order to be, um, you know, the mandated reporter we need to be or whatever it is, yeah. right, um, that are extremely stressful uh, situations. And I think, um, you know, we live in this world where folks do, you know, like yoga and Pilates and, and it's like this this thing that, that uh, is a product that gets sold rather than like um, things that people need to do, whether it's like having a hot cup of tea or talking to your parents uh, mm -hmm. or going for a walk yeah. or making sure you're eating vegetables mm -hmm. or, you know, making sure you're getting enough sleep. Yeah. Um, but doing the things that you need as an educator who's constantly in a position of giving, whether it's yeah. the principal who's having to give to, you know, to teachers or whether it's teachers who have to give to students or whether it's a, you know, campus aide who has to give to everyone who asks. Yeah. Right. Um, but the um, you know, you can't just give. Right. You've also yeah. got to make sure you're taking in and, and really, um, you know, taking care of yourself because you're not going to be able to be. Uh, effective right. uh, in the classroom if you're not bringing your best self to the table. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's easy, I think, in helping professions. Um, and frankly, I think easy in, in professions where uh, historically the, uh, the folks who've done the work have been primarily women and are, you know, kind of like um, expected to do the giving. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's easy to, to just fall into that, right? Mm -hmm. um, and not... Uh, you know, not protect uh, the integrity of yourself along the way. And yeah. so uh, I think that's, that's just something important I would offer for, for educators out there as well. Mm -hmm. You have permission to take care of yourself too. <laughs> like getting enough sleep is, shouldn't be a luxury item. Absolutely. <laughs> you know? That's facts. Yeah. yeah. I, I was just recently at an event with Jason Reynolds and LeVar Burton. And LeVar Burton said that exact thing. thing. He said, protect your asset. And you are your asset, right? Mm -hmm. Like you can't give to others if you're not 
taking care of yourself. So teachers need to remember, and educators, to protect their asset. Absolutely. And I feel like any conversation that ends with a LeVar Burton quote. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, just facts. I feel like just, we should put yeah. a pin in it right there because it's not going to get any better True. than it just True. got. <laughs> I love LeVar Burton. I know. Man. He's awesome. Reading Rainbow. Yeah, yeah, all time. Man. All time. Roots, favorite. Star Trek. All of yeah. it. Yeah. Lieutenant Jordy LaForge. want to give him a hug. The house. Just, He's, yeah. Such a warm yeah. visual. Dope earring. Yeah. Earring. All that. Remember all that? Yeah. All right. Well, uh, folks, I think that brings us to a, to a wonderful end of today's seminar. And um, thank you for joining this conversation with us. I hope you pulled some pearls from it. I know I did, even just talking to these two brilliant folks here. Um, and I want to give a special thanks to our senior middle school correspondent. Um, you know, that title means you're going to be seeing Genevieve with a little more regularity uh, yep. this season. And as we go forward with the show, uh, she always brings a, a, a wonderful perspective to us. So uh, thanks for being here, Se yes. senior correspondent. Thank you. I'm proud mm. to be the all of the above senior middle school correspondent. Yes. Yes. Okay. Looking forward to a wonderful season. All right. <laughs> uh, thanks, folks. And next up is our class dismissed. All right, folks, we have arrived at our class dismissed. Thanks for joining us in today's episode. And this is the time when we pause to kind of reflect and give some shout outs to people doing amazing things out there in our field of education. And I am thrilled today mm. to give a special shout out to the one and only Jonathan Hines, who is, uh, as some of you may have seen online, the new uh, Pre-K Educator of the Year Ooh. in the state of Georgia. Woo. And he is the first black man to receive that award. Uh, so we want to give mm. a huge shout out to John Jonathan Hines. Um, now, Jonathan Hines was named the 1920 Pre-K Teacher of the Year by the Georgia Department of Education's Bright from the Start Early Education, nice. or excuse me, Early Care and Learning um, uh, Agency down there in the state of Georgia. Um, he is going to receive, as a part of this award, a $7,500 award. Nice. 2000 goes to the school, 2500 goes to his classroom, and then 3000 he gets to do what he wants with. Mm. Uh, he's going to be traveling the state to share uh, instructional tips and meet with folks. So uh, just a wonderful story. It's great to see uh, in a field where we have such a shortage of black men, uh, this amazing uh, young man just doing incredible work with the youngest students, the little, you know, yeah. the little ones, the four-year-olds uh, down there in Georgia. So props, Jonathan. Uh, shout out to you, seriously, from, from all the above. Absolutely. And you better not use that money to buy supplies for your classroom. You've earned that money. Do something fun <laughs> with it. It's for you. You don't have to feel guilty. I know how teachers are when they come across some... Um, extra funds that they didn't anticipate. And oh, I could use this to this. We could do this cool project and that cool project. Nope, use it for you. You've earned it. All right, folks, thank you for watching our latest episode and listening if you're listening on the go. Please remember to follow, rate us, review us. That makes a big difference when it comes to those algorithms. And if you haven't already followed us on Twitter, we are at AOTA Show. And we post a bunch of clips there and a bunch of other extra stuff. So uh, head on over there and follow. And we will see you next time.